going to look together at Article 32 from our Belgic Confession. You can find that on page 85 in the back of your Psalter hymnals. But before we do that, I'd like to read with you two brief passages, looking first at Jeremiah chapter 23, and then turning over to 1 Timothy 4. Now, Jeremiah 23, this whole chapter is instructive in the light of the confession, the section of the confession that we read this evening, because it is an admonition. Remember, Jeremiah wrote uh, really in the evening, if you will, of the, the southern kingdom of Judah. So the northern kingdom has already been exiled. The southern kingdom is about to be exiled. In Jeremiah's life, it will be. And he's calling the people to, at the very least, acknowledge the sin that they've committed, to repent, to, to turn. And so he begins that admonition in the first six verses of this chapter, Jeremiah 23. He says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. But I, but I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase." I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. Amen. And then turning over to 1 Timothy 4, coming to a whole new era in the history of God's people, the Apostle Paul writes to the young minister Timothy, and in verse, or chapter 4, he gives, them, gives him this instruction. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives', to, wives fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth, 
But be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Now, summarizing the instruction of those two passages and many, many others, our confession, having reminded us of how God raises up ministers, elders, and deacons as the council of the church by which he rules and leads and, and directs the church, It now reminds us of their calling, particularly the elders, to exercise discipline within the church. In the meantime, we believe, though it is useful and beneficial that those who are rulers of the church institute and establish certain ordinances among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, yet that they ought studiously to take care that they do not depart from those things which Christ our only Master has instituted. And therefore we reject all human inventions and all laws which man would introduce into the worship of God, thereby to bind and compel the conscience in any manner whatsoever. Therefore we admit only of that which tends to nourish and preserve concord and unity and to keep all men in obedience to God. For this purpose excommunication or church discipline is requisite with all that pertains to it according to the word of God. Amen. Beloved family of God in Christ, there's a verse in Proverbs 13 that I remember, I remember when I was a teenager reading through Proverbs, I was finally getting serious about trying to read through the Bible, and, and as I went through Proverbs, I was struck by all of the, the wisdom that was found there, but I remember the first time I came to Proverbs 13, verse 24, this single verse, it struck me so hard, because it says, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Now, that's not the only time that Proverbs speaks of the rod of discipline, nor is it the only time that it speaks of the, the calling of parents to discipline their children. But the contrast that that particular verse offers between the parent who hates his child and the one who loves is stunning. Elsewhere, Proverbs offers plenty of solid reasons, justification for that statement. For instance, in Proverbs 29, verse 14, or 15, it says, The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 22:15, 15, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14, Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Now understand, of course, it's not talking about child abuse. It's not talking about whipping him with a thick stick. But it's talking about spanking, corporal punishment, ensuring that our children understand that disobedience hurts. My kids are kind of smiling at that. That was always what we reminded them of just before they 
they got a spanking. Disobedience hurts. And it's important that our children understand that. Because unless they learn that disobedience of mom and dad hurt, it'll be very difficult for them to grasp the essential lesson that disobedience of God hurts eternally. And so, parents who refuse to discipline their children, they may think of themselves as being gentle or enlightened, that they're desiring to break the cycle of violence and training through positive reinforcement. It all sounds very civilized, very reasonable. But Proverbs cuts through all the expert speak, cuts through all the modernity, and it says that what you're actually doing is showing hatred toward your child when you refuse to discipline them, when you refuse to show them that disobedience hurts. Well, if that's the case with raising our children at home, then how much more is that the case with raising disciples in the church? Perhaps no metaphor suits this message so well as that of sheep and the shepherd. The Lord has declared himself to be the good shepherd who loves his sheep and does what is good for them. And we are the foolish sheep who are so quick to depart from the good ways in which he guides us, who are often stumbling into situations that, that present mortal danger, who expose ourselves to enemies on every side. But here is our comfort, brothers and sisters. Christ, our shepherd, loves his sheep enough to discipline us. And that's the theme that we find in Article 32 of our Confession. Christ, our shepherd, loves his sheep enough to discipline us. And he uses the office bearers he has set in the church in order to do that. But if they are to discipline us in the way that Christ wants us to be disciplined, if they are to discipline us as instruments in the hand of our chief shepherd, then the discipline they bring must be discipline that first of all does not replace his word, but that secondly and most importantly enforces his word. See, the discipline always comes from Christ if it's true discipline. And so it focuses on his word. But that means first of all that it must not replace his word. So that's the first thing that we see. See, that was the sin of the shepherds whose condemnation Jeremiah spoke about in our first scripture reading. The Lord was not shy about accusing these shepherds of scattering God's sheep. He was talking about the exile that had already begun. The northern tribes had already been exiled by Assyria. They had been scattered among the nations. And now the southern tribes, when Jeremiah wrote this, they were already being exiled. Probably when he wrote this section, the first exile had already begun among God's people in the south. And very soon, all but the, the poorest, all but the most destitute, would be scattered throughout Babylon. And through Jeremiah, God says, it's your fault, you shepherds. He's talking to the priests. He's talking to the prophets. He's talking to the, the, the rulers in their midst. And he says, it's your fault that they're being scattered. You're the ones who sent them out among the Gentiles. How so? Well, later on, he explains... In verses 10 and 11, he, he talks about how they misused their power in order to pursue evil. Rather than using their power to protect God's people, they used it to seek after evil things. 
In verse 13, they showed the people by their example how to serve false gods. Verse 14, they showed the people by their example how to commit sin and rebellion against God. Verse 15, he says that they were the source of the ungodliness that spread throughout Israel. And when the people did reject God, those who should have called the sheep back, those who should have led them back into the green pasture of repentance and faith, they said, no, all is well. They spoke peace and and prosperity to the people rather than calling them to repent. So summarizing all that they had done, Jeremiah declares that their sin lay in speaking on God's behalf as those ordained by him when they themselves were opposing God's will. And so later in that chapter, the Lord says, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, if they had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. If those prophets, priests, and kings had brought the word of God, God would have led them into repentance. God would have drawn them back to himself. And they would not have been scattered. They would not have been led to suffer. From the very start, God promised that he would be the shepherd of his people. That's why... That's why he raised up those prophets and priests and kings. They were to be instruments in his hand to bless the people. But Jeremiah shows us what happens when those under-shepherds begin abusing the sheep. When they see them heading toward dangerous terrain, toward cliffs and rocky crags, and rather than leading them back into a safe place, they just shrug and go about their business and allow the sheep to, to wander off and harm themselves. These were shepherds who couldn't be bothered to seek out the sheep that departed, to bind up and treat those who were wounded. And he tells tells us plainly that their sin was rooted in their departure from God's Word. It's because they themselves were not following God's Word, and it's because they themselves were not leading the people to know God's Word. It's a sin that came and that still comes in two forms. First of all, by taking away from God's Word. They called good that which God had called bad. They encouraged what God prohibited. And when those under their care embraced sin, they saw no need to warn them. Jeremiah reports, I have seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me and like the inhabitants of Gomorrah. And folks, 2,600 years later, that same sin is alive and well in the church. Ministers in good standing, even among churches that call themselves Reformed, openly teach that the Bible says nothing about the sins of the day in our culture. Elders freely encourage, sometimes by word, but more often by example, they Freely encourage careless breaking of the Sabbath, dishonest business practices, greed, gluttony, racism, and a whole host of other sins that they themselves have embraced as their own. I recently saw reports about how a group of Christian ministers, professedly, in Des Moines, are openly, publicly supporting the continued legality of abortion. They read God's Word, but they reject it. And then they teach others to do the same. When the people embrace sin and wickedness, they look at them and they say, peace, peace, all is well. 
when in fact those sheep are heading toward a cliff that will destroy them. So some commit this sin by replacing God's word with the word of men. And others by, or by, by removing God's word from the people. Others by replacing God's word with the word of men. By adding to it. This sin is repeatedly condemned in Scripture. Consider the Pharisees who so often were condemned by Jesus. And why? It wasn't because they withheld God's word from the people. It's because they added to it time and time again. Not content with the law as given by God, they added precept to precept. They wanted the Sabbath to be considered holy, so they added an exhaustive list of things that people should not, could not, must not do. It wasn't enough to know that, that we must love our neighbor. They added specific directions on who was and who was not to be considered one's neighbor. Paul warned particularly against this sin in 1 Timothy 4. He spoke of those... Uh, where is it? Verse 3. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. Rather than allowing folks to appreciate the goodness of what God had given and to appreciate it in, in moderation. These were people who said, no, you must not eat that, you must not touch that, you must not do these other things. Later he warns about profane and old wives' fables. Groundless teaching that folks mindlessly follow. Traditions that lead them astray from following what God has actually said. Like other means of replacing God's word, this too, this sin too, remains active today. Think of those who in their zeal declare that we must not use any alcohol. It's a position that ignores the fact that Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into wine, good wine. Not to mention the a criticism of Paul who told Timothy to drink wine. Others add to God's word by prohibiting television or prohibiting service in the armed forces or prohibiting a number of other things which are not inherently sinful and are not condemned in God's word. Ultimately, the rulers of God's people, of God's church, who replace the word of God, what they're doing really is, is setting themselves over God. It's a sin of pride that says, I know better than God knows. The varieties of that sin are nearly limitless. It might be the addition of new elements to worship which God never commanded in His Word. It might be the prohibition of some form of entertainment which is not inherently sinful. It could involve any of a number of opinions or cultural practices, whatever its manifestation. This sin binds the conscience of fellow believers. Kids, you know what that means? It means they're saying that if you do this, you're sinning. So you must not do that. Or if you don't do this other thing, you're sinning. But what they claim we must do or must not do is not found in God's Word. That's binding the conscience of your fellow Christians. And this we must not do unless what we are talking about, what we are using to bind the conscience, comes clearly from Scripture. When the rulers of the church replace God's word with their own opinions, they become like parents who refuse to discipline. And I mean that very pointedly. Because parents who refuse to discipline generally don't think they hate their children. They have good reasons on paper for what they're doing. It's like the Pharisees. They taught God's people to never use the name of God. Not because they wanted the people to re rebel against God, but because they knew that, that God hates the sin of misusing His name. And so they reasoned that 
Well, if you never use God's name, you can't misuse God's name. And likewise, the prohibitionists of, of years past argued that without any alcohol, well, the sin of drunkenness should become unknown among us. But the problem is, as sound as their logic seemed, as good as it looked on paper, it went beyond what God's Word said. It, it sought to do what God never sought to have us do. Parents who refuse to discipline their children, they generally say, well, well, we're trying to teach lessons to our children, that it's never right to resort to violence, and that there'll never be any question about whether I'm abusing my child, and, and that my goal is to, to teach my child to respond not to violence, but to reason and to logic. On, the, on paper, that looks good. It really does. But in practice... In practice, it shows hatred for that child who will never learn that sin hurts. Disobedience hurts. And children respond to that. And if they don't learn that from dad, that disobedience hurts, they're going to have a really, really hard time learning from God that disobedience hurts. But even worse than showing hatred for that child, they're really showing hatred toward God. Because God commanded the parents to discipline their children. Ephesians 6 verse 4 commands God's people to bring up their children in the discipline and fear of the Lord. And those passages in Proverbs show us what that needs to look like. So when they refuse, when we refuse to discipline our children in the way that God has spoken, we're saying, I know better than God. We're saying, my way is better than the way God has laid out. And that's rebellion. It's no less a rebellion when the parents do it or when the elders and ministers do it. Christ, our chief shepherd, has given us instruction about how to raise children and also how to raise churches, how to raise disciples. As parents, we need to take that instruction and consider it as gold. It's the owner's manual. It's the, the way that we're called to raise up godly children in love, in care, but also with discipline. And as elders and ministers, we're to take up that same word and we're to ask, how are we to guide God's people? How are we to lead them? How are we to instruct them? How are we to show them what it means to follow after Christ as their king, as their shepherd? We may not replace his word. It's essential. But at the same time, we must enforce his word. That's the other side to that. In Jeremiah 23, we heard how God promised to punish the shepherds who had led his people into rebellion for which they would be exiled. But that wouldn't be the end. He wouldn't cast off his people forever. Instead, he promised that he would also restore his people from the exile. He would give them a true king of, by which he spoke of Christ. And he would raise up new shepherds, faithful shepherds, who would fear the Lord and preserve them from harm. Well, God is faithful. He's true to his promises. He did restore his people through leaders, faithful leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah. He did establish that king after David's line who was faithful to him, Jesus Christ. And in every age he has been raising up leaders in his church who would be shepherds, who would guide and guard and protect the people who bear his name. But if they are to fulfill that crucial calling, these elders must not rule according to their own wisdom, according to the wisdom of the world. 
No, they must rule according to the word that God has given. They must enforce that word and not their own. What's that look like? Well, it certainly, it certainly must involve the teaching of the church, right? The preaching and the teaching that is done in the church, the ministry of the Word is essential to the well-being of the church. Every one of our elders and ministers is called to be a teacher. Now, not all teach in the same way. Not all preach from the pulpit. Not all teach in the catechism classroom. But every one of them is called to be able to teach from the Word. And that's what God's people need. Brothers, when you go on a visit to somebody who is straying, you dare not come with the wisdom of your own mind, your own heart. You must come with an open Bible showing the counsel of God's Word that reveals why this path is wrong and why this path is right. Why this path will lead to death and this other path will lead to life. And when you come to those families in family visits, you must come with an open Bible. Because that is the word that will reveal their heart. That is the word that will show where that family stands. And that is the word that will guide that family, that individual, that disciple to know and love the shepherd who has called them. God's people need to hear the shepherd, the chief shepherd's voice when the under-shepherds come into their presence. In that way alone will they gain the strength and the direction and the comfort that will sustain and mature them. So in their teaching, the shepherds of the church must rely on God's Word, must enforce that Word, but also in, in the worship of the church. Ever since Cain brought his defective sacrifice, God's people have sought to replace the worship God has commanded with the worship that men invent. That God doesn't approve. Kids, do you remember the story of Nadab and Abihu? Two of Aaron's four sons. Those four sons were ordained as priests out in the wilderness. And one day, according to Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu came and they offered profane fire before the Lord. That means that they brought coals that were not from the altar of sacrifice. They brought incense that was not commanded. They were worshiping God, but they were worshiping God according to their wisdom, according to their desire, and not according to His instruction. And God's response was to send fire out from the altar to consume them. He destroyed them where they stood because they sought to worship in a way that was not commanded, and that showed that they thought they knew better than God, that they were holier than God. Jesus, when he spoke of worship, he said this in John chapter 4. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Without the Holy Spirit, our worship is lifeless. It's dead. It can't be pleasing to God. But also without the truth of God, directing us, instructing us, showing us what our worship should involve, our worship is dead and lifeless and cannot be pleasing to God. Now here's comfort, brothers and sisters. So many in our world worship blindly. Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, Wiccans, they all worship in their own way according to their own imagination and they have absolutely no confidence in their worship. They have no idea whether their God is pleased or not pleased. And, and in fact, we know that the true God is very displeased by their false worship. But we have been given the truth of the true God. 
instructing us as to how our worship ought to look, what it ought to involve. And we've been given the assurance that when we worship as he commands, not only does he accept it, but he delights in it. So you shepherds, you elders among us, if you lead God's people in this worship, if you lead them to know and to cherish the worship that has been commanded, you lead them in the comfort, in the confidence of knowing that they approach the the one true God with the worship in which he delights. So we must lead them in God's word, in our teaching, also in our worship, and also by our example. The clearest sermon that ever was preached was preached by the life of a godly man. So our elders and our ministers need to follow the instruction that Paul gave to Timothy when he said, be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Notice that. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers. Be something they can imitate in word, in what you say and how you say it. In conduct, the way you behave before men. In love, the selflessness you show. Seeking to imitate the selfless, self-giving love of Christ. In spirit, as you give yourself over to the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit, in faith, as you trust Christ no matter what situation God leads you into, and also in purity, striving to repent of your sins, striving to live in a way that delights God. A little farther down, he says, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Brothers, you whom God has raised up as elders, both active elders and those who are currently on sabbatical, hear this well. You are called to lead God's people in knowing and loving God's word. And the clearest way you do that is by the way you live before them. the way you study God's Word, the way you put it into action in your interaction among the church, the way you you let that Word lead you to weep with those who weep and, and celebrate with those who celebrate, the way you allow it to inform the way you relate to your wife and to your children and to your grandchildren. As that Word seeps into and influences every part of your life, the people around you learn how to apply God's Word to their lives. And not only, not only in your example, but also by your counsel and your rebuke. For God does give commands to His people. And if they are His, they will, over time, Heed those commands. They'll turn away from their sins. They'll embrace that which is right and righteous. But sometimes the way that they're led to do that, sometimes it's by us, by our admonition, by us coming alongside of them and and sometimes gently, sometimes more powerfully counseling them that this is what God commands you to do, that this is how you must act. And that's hard. That's probably the hardest part of the elder's calling. 
to go and visit someone who's living in a way that's wrong, who probably knows that they're living in a way that's wrong, who doesn't really want to hear from you that the way that they're living is not right. But to go and, and even though you want with all that is in you to say everything is fine, you're doing fine, it's, it's okay. To go and faithfully bring God's word that says it's not okay. You have to turn, and it's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. When you go to that young couple that decided to do what all their friends are doing and start living together, and you have to tell them, no, it's not okay. You have to separate. And then you need to get married and do it the right way. And you need to to put Christ at the center of that relationship. And yeah, I know that's going to be hard. Yeah, I know that's going to mess up all your plans. And you've got to do it anyway. And I'm going to walk alongside of you. Or when you go to that couple that are ready to divorce and you have to say, no, no, no. God hates divorce. You have to work it out. And I'm going to walk alongside of you. We're going to walk alongside of you. But we're going to obey God together. Or when you have to go to that person who has so mistreated his co-worker or his employee and you have to say, now, this is what God's Word says. This is the way you have to make it right. That's hard. But that's our calling, brothers. And you people of God, it's our calling to hear them when they come to us. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and they are our friends when they come to us as shepherds serving the chief shepherd, and they show us from God's word that what we're doing is dangerous, that we're sheep who are heading toward a place filled with predators or toward a a path that is going to destroy us, and that we need to turn back. We need to trust God enough To know that his word knows better than we do. But that's hard. That that hits us right in the pride. We want to defend ourselves. We want to justify the path that we've chosen to take. But remember what Hebrews 12 says. That God disciplines those whom he loves. And if we are not disciplined, then we we see that we are not his children. But when he disciplines us, His discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. And so we need to receive the discipline they bring when they bring that word with gratitude, with humility. But it's hard to submit. Discipline hurts. We fear it. And so we're tempted to start asking questions, searching for loopholes. Kids, you know about that, right? You start asking drastic things. Well, I know I have to obey dad, but do I always have to obey dad? What if dad tells me to kick the dog? Do I have to obey him then? Well, of course not. Well, if I don't have to obey dad when he says something like that, what about when he says something like this? We search for one loophole by looking to the extremes, and then then we start reasoning that, you know, maybe I don't have to obey dad absolutely. And so you start questioning everything dad says, and we can start doing that with the elders of the church. Well, what if one tells me that, that we have to worship six times on Sunday? Well, if we don't have to, to follow them when they say that, then we, do we really have to follow them when they say we, we ought to come and worship twice? And we search for loopholes. We search for ways in which we can 
disobey, that we can turn away from them. But listen, just asking the question is an offense because it assumes that our shepherds are going to mistreat us, that they're going to lead us astray, that they're going to lead us in a way that is not profitable or godly. And just asking the question assumes that God's going to give us leaders who will lead us astray. And we know that there are leaders who will lead us astray. We know that sometimes God raises up men who hurt us. He allowed those shepherds. He allowed those shepherds whom he condemned in Jeremiah 23. We understand that. That's why we have the obligation to keep this word open too. When they come to us and they tell us that we're doing wrong and they don't have this word open, we have every right to ask the shepherd, where's the credentials of the chief shepherd? I'm hearing your voice, but I haven't yet heard the voice of the chief shepherd. Can you show me from his word what you're talking about? We have every right and obligation to do that. But when they come with that word open, when you hear the voice of the chief shepherd, you must obey them. And if you don't, well, then you elders have the calling to exercise discipline. When the sheep won't come back, when you nudge it, you have the calling to bring out the shepherd's rod and to drive them back to the flock because if you don't, they will die. And not only they. You ever watch a sheep go astray? They don't go astray alone. Pretty soon another one follows them and then another one follows that one and pretty soon the whole flock is headed to this dangerous place. Unless you drive that first one back. Unless you restore him to the flock. 1 Corinthians 5 warns us. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. By leaven, yeast, he's talking about sin. A little sin soon spreads through the whole congregation. If the elders refuse to discipline, if the elders don't hold people accountable for living in their sin, for embracing sin, and if they don't do it in a timely way, pretty soon the church sees that sin has no consequence. And that sin spreads. And so he warns us that when people embrace their sin, when they harden themselves in their sin, we must cast them out from the church. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? What happened to judge not lest you be judged? Well, what happened is that was taken out of context. If we read that in context, it shows us that we are called to judge ourselves first and most harshly. And then once we've judged ourselves, then we can in love go to our brother who is living in sin and urge him to turn away from that sin. But we're not called to never judge. We're called to judge in a loving and humble manner. And you elders are called to do that on behalf of Christ. For the sake of the sinner that he might be turned back from the way that will destroy him. For the sake of the church that they might not be led astray through that one who is sinning. And for the sake of the witness of the church that the world might see that we do not wink at sin. That we do not approve of hypocrisy. And if you do it, if you enforce that word in love and in faithfulness, then brothers and sisters, the sheep will rejoice. Yes, you'll get complaints now and then. Yes, you'll get people who think it's terribly unfair and unjust, but 
but the flock will be saved. The sheep will be matured and strengthened. And the little lambs will know that there is safety when we follow the voice of the shepherd. We confess that Christ, our chief shepherd, loves his sheep enough to discipline them. So let us joyfully submit when the shepherds God sets over us guide us and lead us by their teaching, by their worship, by their example, and by their discipline. Knowing that it's the chief shepherd keeping us, keeping us in his care. And let us pray for these whom he has raised up as shepherds. That they would have wisdom, that they would have humility, that they would have love. Most of all, that they would have faithfulness in leading us according to the instruction of the chief shepherd of our souls. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we thank You that You love us so very much. And we pray that You would, would continue to guide and bless and protect us through the Word that You've given and through the shepherds whom You've set over us. May You humble us under them and discipline us that we might grow in our understanding and in our faithfulness. And may you, Lord, be honored and blessed through your people whom you disciple, whom you strengthen, whom you grow. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.